here today basically to have a little conversation um, about eCPR. Um, Some people might know a little bit about it. Some people, you know, might not have heard anything at all. And the purpose of the podcast is really to give them a wee bit more information about, you know, what is it? Even where did the idea come from? Some people might never have heard the term. But for myself, when I learned about it, I was just blown away. I was like, this is absolutely amazing. I love the way that this translates to people on a human level. And for me, that was the the thing that made me really curious about how is this different than what people have done in the past? Why do I prefer this more? So they're the kind of questions that I think people would be interested in. Um... So I thought we could just have a little discussion about it. Yeah, and I mean, rather than me introduce you, introduce yourself and and let let people know what you do. Mm-hmm. So I think I will introduce myself first. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I'm I'm Susan Scott, and um, I work for a, a mental health charity in Perth, and I've been doing that for about twenty years. Before that, I was a psychiatric nurse, um, and I met Dan about eight years ago, Dan Fisher, who's the um, person who's got emotional CPR actually going uh, from the very start. Um, so the, um, it really struck me um, at a time when, yeah, there, there didn't seem to be an awful, I felt that things were going in a very sort of inhumane way with services, that people were not being treated um, like human beings and um, lots of different some trainings were coming in that were kind of along that line of being quite sterile and and, and losing something that, that yeah, it just didn't feel right so anyway um, I met Dan in anyway we have in Perth done probably about 10 emotional CPR CPR trainings and I've done about six myself um, and I suppose it's been life-changing for me and it's been a gradual process as well because um, having my background of being a psychiatric nurse um, it took probably longer than it might take with somebody who didn't have that training or that Ah. teaching trained out you know around being with people because as a nurse you're you're actually trained to be um almost inhuman right so it was sort of trained it was trained out me so it took longer i would say so i had about five trainings before before i felt that i was really being able to open up Mm -hmm. communicate heart to heart and feel relaxed about it and feel the stress levels in my own Self dropping when I was that horrible um, feeling of being with somebody and feeling I'm not helping them at all. I'm just spouting out rubbish, and I, I, you know, I knew that I wasn't helping, and I didn't know what to do. So, come from that to now feeling much 
much more peace, if, this, if that's the right word, but much more able to sort of just relax and be with the person. Um, and it's made life, my life has changed, you know, because I've children and I've been able to communicate with them. Yeah. So I could I could say an awful lot about emotional CPR, but just just being able to be um, in that trajectory or be in that that sort of world has has, has made my life um, and I think who I am. Um, yeah, more more more. I don't know if enjoyable is the right word, but definitely feel more um, at peace and more relaxed with, with what I do. That's really well, that's really powerful, Susan. Because the yeah. thing that strikes me about that is that you've had that background in psychiatric okay. training. Yeah. And so yeah. many people feel you have to have that. Exactly. I, and they still feel that. Sadly, this, I spoke to a girl two days ago who um, is going to work for us and um, she seemed to think it was a big problem that she didn't have um, psychiatric training. And I said to her, actually, that's not a problem. That's actually a lot better because you can come at this as a as a human being, and you won't have all the barriers that I built up over the years, and all the, you know, the, the training of somebody to say you must be like this, and you must always be in control, and you must never show your feelings, and all this instinct as a human being. Yeah, because I am. Uh, and you know emotional really as a person but it was kind of trained out of me so uh-huh. yeah I think it's quite um, important for people to realize you know mm-hmm. that they they are as, as just as a person they are they are well good enough to be able to be with another person yeah. um if they can understand you know this approach really or this way of being good yeah I I really I really kind of, I feel like I'm on the same level there because I came from a family that was in trauma and having had to deal with psychiatric services at different points, um, I just, I just didn't feel they were, they were helping or getting to the heart of what was the real issues. And I thought, I don't know how there's a different way to do this, but I know that the way that is being used is not working. There may be some aspects of it that might help. Mm-hmm. But there's other things that that need done, you know, and and that's why I was quite a bit curious, Dan. It, I mean, you, if you can introduce yourself as well here at this point, but mm-hmm. you know, where did it come from in the first place? I mean, how, was it yourself that came up with the idea? Or? Um, well, <clears throat> it's a pleasure to be here, by the way, um, Maggie, and uh, and your your wonderful um, and enthusiastic uh, hosts. I really appreciate that Thank so you. um uh, where did it come from well it came from um our hearts um uh, about three of us um people we say with lived experience um in in the states um we we'd been thinking a long time that there was a need for a different kind of uh training a different kind of approach uh, based on really what we most wanted when we were in distress and um, and the disappointment that we were feeling, which uh, Susan has expressed, the disappointment that uh, the traditional, um, you know, the conventional training uh, was actually having the opposite effect. 
And mm. many pe- well-meaning people go into the field. I'm sure that, you know, when Susan first went in, she was thinking, well, I'm going to help people. I'm going to be there for them. And and the, the, uh, a psychiatric nurse training and my own training, I, I got trained as a psychiatrist. Um, it, 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 it teaches you to distance yourself. Um, and, and removes the, the human factor. And, and being a human being is probably the most important thing that you can, um, get across, uh, with, to somebody. And it is a way, as Susan said, of being. It's not a, in that sense, it's not really, uh, training a skill. It's, it's really, um, giving examples and, and experiences of how to be differently how to be with a person um, and and not to judge them, not to try to fix them, not to label them, but really at a deep level with your whole heart as much as possible to really be with them. And I'll just give you a, a quick vignette as to where in myself it came from. Um, when I was, when I was in my twenties, um, I was, um, and that was a while ago, I was a uh, biochemist, and um, I got a PhD in biochemistry, and partly partly to try to uh, help my sister, because I have a younger sister who's had quite quite lengthy um, uh, distress. She had severe anorexia when she was eight years old, and she had therapy, which actually helped to, helped her out because the therapy found out it was in the days when they actually talked to people that it was trauma that she had been suffering. So she did get a bit better, but she never, she never really recovered a full life. Very talented, very, very bright, very um, musical, very artistic, but not able to run her own life in a real basic way. And my father was a doctor, and my parents would say it must be a chemical imbalance. That was back in the 50s. They were actually thinking that then, too. And I went in the laboratory because my father's friends said, well, you know, go to the laboratory. Uh, find out the, the chemical imbalance that's caused your, your sister's problems or anyone else who has psychiatric problems. And I, I was good as a biochemist. I got my Ph.D. when I was 24. I worked. Uh, I got a job at our National Institute of Mental Health. And I, I studied the, uh, the regulation of neurotransmitters, serotonin, dopamine. These are now household names. They weren't in the 60s. And, um, and I'm proud to say I wrote, you know, a number of papers that, you know, still have held up. Um, but it left me cold. It left me cold. I, I, I felt like it took the life out of me uh, to think that, you know, feelings and dreams and, um, I don't know, anxieties and fears and everything was a chemical made me feel like I wasn't a person. And I literally started to believe that I was just the, the enzymes that I was studying. My boss thought it was great. He said, you really get into the problem. But I couldn't get out of it. <laughs> and literally, the only thing I could think to do, and my, my personal life was suffering. Um, I, I was married uh, at a young age, and, and I was such a scientist that I actually woke up in the middle of the night one night. Uh, my wife and I were sleeping. I woke up and I said, I just want the facts, the hard, cold facts. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Not a, 
not a very romantic. <laughs> <laughs> Needless to say, she did the smart thing, which is to get out. <laughs> so she left. Left me heartbroken, though. I can smile and laugh about it a bit now, but I was heartbroken. Yeah. And I was angry also that my, my research was not helping my heart. And I went into psychoanalysis, and that didn't really help my heart either. Um, so I just stopped. I stopped everything. I stopped going to work. I stopped talking. I went into what's called catatonia because mm -hmm. I just I couldn't think of what to do next. Everything that I'd thought of, everything that I'd planned. Um, was not successful. I was unsuccessful in love and work. You know, they, and it didn't, and, and by the way, young people that are out there right now, think very carefully and think with your heart, not just your head. If yeah. you're thinking about getting either married or you're thinking about your career, these are big decisions. These aren't like, oh, that's a good movie. <laughs> yeah. I think I'll yep. check it out. <laughs> these are lifetime decisions, mm -hmm. we hope. Yeah. So I stopped, and I, the only thing my family could do, they were terrified, of course. I was just sitting there looking at the wall. I didn't tell them that I thought I was taking up all the oxygen so I shouldn't breathe too much or all these very unusual thoughts. Mm -hmm. And they were symbolic, and I was trying to work out what's wrong with me. So when I was hospitalized, the only people that reached me initially were the people with less formal training. And that was the peers that were there. They weren't called peers. They were mm -hmm. just fellow patients and the orderlies. Maybe right. they were the only, they just were human beings, as you were saying. Yeah. And they reached me. So for years, I thought there's got to be a way, a different way of training people mm -hmm. so that they don't, you know, scare you to death with all their questions and all their, you know, all their looks. <laughs> Yeah, you know, there's something called a clinical gaze that is really disquieting. Yes, I know. Uh, I've <laughs> you know, been there. I've strange. been there myself. Yeah. with one of my family well, members. Well, Maggie, uh, I just want to uh, ask you a few questions, and you know, I'm the doctor. And yeah. I mean, I'm not anti-medical. You know, doctors can, and, and I'm not anti-medication. They can mm -hmm. be helpful. Yeah. But the way that they're prescribed, the way that they're given, has to be with a human heart. Yeah. It has to be, I care about you. I really, you know, want you to feel better. And, you know, this isn't forever. And I believe in you. And I believe that you can get better. This can help you some, this medicine or this program. But ultimately, it's our relationship and the relationship you have with other people that will help you to heal. That's what I say when people come to see me. Mm -hmm. And I do prescribe at times. Yeah. But the major thing I want to do and get across to all of society is that everybody can contribute to people's recovery from emotional distress or trauma. It, everyone can do it. That's and as so Susan true. was saying, it's just a tragedy that the training that is being prescribed is actually making it more difficult mm -hmm. to respond in the most human way mm. that's what that's what is just i i tell you i'm i'm not going to rest i'm not going to leave this world until i make sure everybody knows that yeah well i'm glad 
I'm glad yes. to. <laughs> because I'm not planning to leave. <laughs> because as people and human beings, we need that connection with other people and it has been broken in so many different ways. And no. to be, you know, sometimes people suffer traumas, but then to have to come up against the medical profession afterwards right. can actually, it's like it re-traumatises you again because you're trying to get over how you feel and it's like there's yeah. just a wall where it's like, no, no, you can't feel like that. That That's not how, and you're like, but I do feel like that. This is how it's affecting me. Mm. And and so for for me to learn about ECPR was like a, a complete awakening that this is the way that we have to go. We have to connect with other human beings on a heart-to-heart level. And it's the only way, I think, really, that's going to actually make a difference. And And like you say, Dan, there's so many people... There are, obviously, there are things that are helpful to people and sometimes there's medication that's needed Mm -hmm. and there are different Mm -hmm. types of practices that people can put into play. Mm -hmm. But the most powerful thing has to be the human connection. Human. Human connection is is vital. And and it it needs to be present in each of the ways of helping also. When I see somebody and I'm their psychiatrist and, you know, as I say, I do prescribe some medication. I do say to them, this, this medicine will, it will help ease some of the distress, but you're the, you're the healing agent. It, the healer is within you and you need to, you know, find a way to discover it. And other people can assist you in that mm-hmm. along the way. They can collaborate with you mm-hmm. and you can just open up a little bit and a little bit more. I must say, I am thrilled with the way emotional CPR has been developing. I'm very, very grateful to Susan Scott. Uh, I came to Scotland, she said eight years, I think maybe more like six, but it was a while ago. <laughs> and uh, a Jeffrey Huggins, I want to give him credit. He was the administrator of the um, Department of Health for Scotland at the time, Scottish government. And um, I'd, I'd met him at several meetings, several conferences, the International Initiative on um, Mental Health uh, Leadership, so IIMHL. And, and, and we met on and off, and I, and I found him kind of a jovial, friendly sort of fellow. And I said, why, could I come and give a description of emotional CPR to some of the people in Scotland? And, and then he at one point said, okay, I'll fly you over. And I gave about four presentations, probably 15 or 20 people at each, um, near their, near their headquarters, uh, in, in Edinburgh. And, um, to be honest, Susan out of the entire group was the only one that sort of lit up. Wow. And I looked over, I could tell right away. I looked over, because <laughs> I, I look around at people's eyes, really. You can tell in people's eyes, you know, and many of them were just sort of mm, kind of looking like either bored or worried or concerned or. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> What's he doing talking about emotions? I mean, this field should be called emotional health, not mental health. That's true. It's about your feelings and your emotions first. Yeah. And that's what we've learned in emotional CPR is feelings first and, you know, words come second. But anyway, I looked around and I think she was sitting in my right. I looked over and there, whoop, there was a, a, there was a sparkle. Oh, I looked again. There was a sparkle in her eye. <laughs> So I say, you know, give me your card. <laughs> so it only takes one person. One person, one person. She's been the, the, the spark plug for this and carried this, this torch in um, Scotland. And 
in Perth. Uh, uh, I and my wife have come a number of times. We mm -hmm. love Perth. We love Scotland. Um, love the people, and um, and 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 even love the the the, the sheep. I mean, we love <laughs> the sheep, <laughs> <laughs> River Tay, and all the different parts. But um, and so we've been. I've been presenting in um, in Perth and in Edinburgh. Um, Glasgow, we did a training in Glasgow also. Yeah. And I think that we're at possibly now at a new, uh, takeoff point because prior to this, it's been like, well, that's, you know, that's a nice adjunct or that's mm -hmm. a nice, you know, addition, but there hasn't been like, um, an embrace of it mm -hmm. as something that could really help a large number of people, but more, well, maybe that's for people lives experience or peers. No, actually, it is quite helpful for everyone. Mm -hmm. um, parents find it helpful, healthcare workers, first responders. I very much want to reach the police. We did go to Dundee, and there was a representative from the police department there that was very interested in it, sort of mm -hmm. a social policeman and a firefighter also. They both were very interested. But still, until this pandemic, I think it was still seen as, well, that's for the people that are really distressed or that's for yeah. those people over there. Yeah. However, I've seen not only in the U.S., but um, in Europe, Poland, I've been to a lot and, and in Australia and Asia, all around the world now, especially with this pandemic, where everyone is experiencing trauma. trauma. The trauma, this is, yeah, trauma, not trauma. What am I... <laughs> <laughs> I have to apologize for my accent. <laughs> we'll let you off, Dan. I don't we'll notice it, off. but I know that when I listen to Susan, I know I must have an accent. <laughs> <laughs> but it, um, people are recognizing the need to connect more than ever. Mm -hmm. And I am, I'm, I'm sorry that it's taken a pandemic for people to recognize this, but I am a little bit thrilled now that it's not just a few people yeah. you know, that are in distress. But this is really for anyone to help anyone. Yeah. Really yeah. heart to heart. And Susan, you know, you, you obviously connected with Dan right away. What was it about it that you thought, wow, I need to bring this here to Scotland? Um, <laughs> what was it? <laughs> yeah, what was it? <laughs> what was it? Well, I was frustrated, I think, as you, you know, having worked in a system for, for so many years, and um, not really seeing much happening on the ground and, and things kind of going, going in the, the wrong direction, really. You know, like I was saying, some trainings coming in that were making people behave in ways which was more inhumane to other people. Um, and, and just been a bit lacklustre. I'm thinking there's nothing happening. And then going to the, uh, it was a Royal Surgeon's um place in Edinburgh that day and sitting down and um, I'm not even sure how we got the invite. I don't even know <laughs> how I got there in the first place, why why I was invited, but um, I just lapsed up with Dan started speaking. I just thought, oh this is great. This is this is this is what we've been waiting for. Is and I was really I was really enthusiastic because I thought, well, the Scottish government have done this, so obviously there's something happening somewhere. Somebody's, you know, somebody else is um, gearing up to to bring this out. Um, so that that gave me even more enthusiasm. But uh, 
Unfortunately, they, they seem to step back. They step back after the, the meeting. There wasn't any, um, it was a Niall Kearney, I remember, was the guy that was the uh, person that was the MP, MSP at the time. And I think he was a bit shell-shocked with it. I think even he, as an MSP, was thinking, oh, this is a bit, this is this is too too sort of emotional for us, you know. I kind of got that feeling from people that were there. They were like, oh, look, let's get out of this. This is just too much, which I think that's the other big thing, which is the challenge, is the cultural differences. Mm-hmm. Um, the way that Scottish people are and yeah. the way that, you know, the mm-hmm. sort of Celtic kind of mindset um, of um, being a wee bit cold and a bit sort of aloof and, and maybe not... Mm you know embracing the emotions uh-huh. yeah <laughs> you know politely but um you know i i just thought well we're going to do something with this if nobody else does i don't care we're going to i'm going to just keep this going because this is just fab and this is what's needed and yeah. you know as dan was talking again i was thinking you know it does to me seriously feel like a gift because um I don't I don't get scared or frightened now when I'm with somebody that's in distress. I don't get the I don't get the feeling of fear or what I'm gonna do or what I'm gonna say, I've got fixes. Right. I, I actually feel much more um relaxed. It's mm-hmm. not it's it's hard and I and I feel the emotions and, and the distress and you know that, that when you see and you experience yeah. somebody else in that way, but I don't have the fear and the sort of um, um, worry and anxiety, you know, and you, you know, it's 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 made life a lot easier for myself. So I think the 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 other big thing, um, if people can understand it, is it it works for both people, or you know, the person who's mm-hmm. assisting yeah. and and the assister, mm-hmm. you know, or, or both. It works for both anyway because. You, you, you're in, you're in, you're in a sort of, um, you know, you. It's not a bubble, but you're together mm-hmm. and you're experiencing Connecting. it together, mm-hmm. and, and you come mm-hmm. out of it feeling better. And you don't go home and go, oh, I'm worried about this. Oh, that was terrible, and and really fret about it because you've experienced it at that time. And I think that is absolutely, a big, like, yeah, it's huge. You know, yeah. Yeah. I've done the same, Susan. I, I was at first when I did it, I was quite scared myself, thinking I was actually a little bit scared of my own emotions, of actually letting go of my own emotions because they were so powerful because of the feelings that I had towards my family and the trauma that they had suffered. But being able to share that with somebody else and getting it out in a a, a controlled setting, but not you know a prescriptive setting. It was a controlled setting that we were all feeling safe in that environment. And that, that was a really lovely, lovely experience. And I thought, you know, you got, I got as much out of that as, as sitting with, with a doctor or whatever. And whoever I was chatting with at the time, I don't know whether they had any, um, you know, qualifications as such. Um, but it was so powerful, so powerful. Um, and I think I kind of, I say, obviously, Dan Dan kind of started and, and came up with some of this idea with a few people there. You've latched on to that because that actually clicked with you when you met him in Scotland. I've been a family in trauma who has obviously clicked into that. So it just takes a few people, doesn't it? 
Um, and what we were discussing this yesterday, Susan, the Scottish government at the moment has, it's actually an employability programme, but it's actually called No One Left Behind. Um, and it's about being able to communicate with people who are furthest from the labour market, who find it very hard to be able to, you know, get jobs for one reason or another. It could be mental, physical, lots of different things, you know. Um, so although it might have felt like it was fading away and that there hasn't been the interest, I feel myself that it's it's coming back to that because if you've got strategies like no one left behind, it's like there's a recognition that people have been left behind mm. uh, and that we need to do something about it. And that's where I think ECPR comes in. And it's just such a perfect time to actually bring that together and give more strength to support other people. I, yeah, I, yeah. I was just going to say as well. I, I mean, in the last week, I've been speaking to people, um, and and I spoke to a mother whose um, son took his life about two weeks ago, and mm. her words were, uh, "He he disconnected from them, disconnected mm. from the family, and that he didn't communicate. He, he just." He didn't want to worry the mother. He didn't want to, this is what she felt, you know, and that he had um, put on a wee smile on his face and tried to look like everything was fine. Mm -hmm. But, and I think as a parent as well, that that whole thing about being able to connect with your children mm -hmm. um, is, is just, well, obviously it's important. It's not easy a lot of the time because we, we're so naturally worried about them that we'll go in there, you know, like a ton of bricks sometimes and just say the wrong thing. And she'd felt that her son um, was okay, but he wasn't communicating. And, and, and I just, you know, thought if that, if people knew how to communicate with their children in a way that the children really did connect with them, that, that's, that would be fabulous because I think it's the, the, the way that the world is now with, with the computers and Xboxes and, show, and and the way it's been with the COVID, people distancing themselves from their families, sitting in their bedrooms, in their own heads, um, that, that never a, a time have we needed more. Some movement of people to say, this is the, this is how we connect. Mm -hmm. um, and we've, we've just got to get on and do it um, because I, I worry about, you know, the future for young people. And that's, you know, it's really a big concern. When I heard this story this week, you know, I just thought, how sad, you know, you know mm -hmm. and it's it's just the way, you know, we can do something. I think that's that's when I feel optimistic. There's something that can help. Mm -hmm. Yeah, why, that's why we developed it was really to be able to implement a lot of these ideas too. Because yeah. <clears throat> we've, we've as a movement of consumer, survivor, person with lived experience movement, that's what I've been part of for many years. We've, <clears throat> we've been able to get across to um, the people and many governments that recovery actually is possible, that it is possible to recover. Uh, full life, even after severe emotional problems. And people like myself, I was labeled schizophrenia. Um, I went on, I got an MD and became a psychiatrist, 
raise, raising a family, all that goes on forever. But um, <laughs> I think it's it really um, it really is important to think. Well, now how can we take these principles of recovery, which we've come up with many times, and actualize them, implement them, and also trauma informed uh, uh, approaches? But how do you implement? How do you day to day in the so we didn't start with a theory. We just started with practicality. Right. How can how do we experience connection? How can we improve connection, especially at an emotional level? And and we found that it's like, for instance, best not to ask too many questions when somebody's in distress. They don't. Uh, every question feels a little bit like an attack. So you know, try not to question. You know, don't even ask necessarily how are you feeling. I learned that with my daughters very early on. And they <laughs> you say, don't. you're sounding like a psychiatrist. <laughs> and they, they've, they've become converts to emotional CPR recently. My older daughter is now a trainer. And uh, when she presents or you know, talks about her own experience, she said, well, when did I first learn about emotional CPR? I think I grew up with it. <laughs> Bet she did. And when they, yeah, when they were in distress, I would just sit with them. I would sit with them. And um, in the middle of the night, I would sit with them. And it was my own experience of having gone through uh, my own recovery. I just thought, well, she's in distress. You know, they're in distress. Yeah. They just want me to be here. Not, you know, and not necessarily, you know, um, sort of falsely trying to reassure, oh, you'll be all right. That uh, often, People give suggestions or reassurances or things like that because of their own distress. That's you know, true. You might be feeling upset um, about being with somebody who's you know very sad, who wants yeah. to cry. Well, tears are healing. It's it's we 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 actually encourage tears. Uh, we're in a group, and we say try to uh, try not to offer tissues right away. Um, if someone asks for it, that's fine. So we have tissues in the middle of the room. We have twenty people or so, and. We say if somebody wants them, they can ask for them. Yeah. Because it, a lot of times people offer tissues because they the, the tears make them uncomfortable. That is so true. So true, Dan, I because I have seen Leeds. that so yeah, many I in, times. I, I was in Leeds, and uh, it was so funny. The, um, the, the, the It was a very, very, very earnest uh, chaplain. He was a friend's chaplain, which is a kind of unusual idea itself, but he had sponsored us coming there, and and he he had been very sort of tight and uh, a lot of anxiety and uh, I don't know this is hard and, uh, and at one point I guess I or someone else shared some of our own story and our own, it's very important for the trainers to be very open as you give a you know an example and then he cried some about his own life and, and I said well how was that said, oh I'm so glad I was able to cry. He said, I finally felt permission to cry. And we do create a safe enough, I think you said it yourself, we create a safe enough environment in the <clears throat> experience, uh, which we call training, over a two-day period. Now it's done online. And doing it online means that we can reach all over the world. We just are doing a training. My daughter and I have been doing a training. There are people from Ghana, from Israel, from Northern Ireland from Canada, and my other daughter from Los Angeles. <laughs> so we're, we're covering nine time zones. <laughs> wow. 
And we couldn't do that in person. So there are certain advantages. I, I yearn to be back in Scotland, though. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. I, <laughs> we'll have you back, Dan. Don't worry. We'd love to have you back. <laughs> I said to my wife, if I just could get the virus and get it over with, then I could start traveling again. <laughs> like, no, 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 no. No, you no, don't no. want that. <laughs> dear. Oh, dear. But uh, for me, Dan, one of the most powerful things that you said was that when you were in distress and had stopped speaking to people, that the person who actually got through to you was an orderly. Now that was, that to me epitomizes everything. It's like, this is a person who is looked down on because of they've no qualifications. They're maybe just cleaning the ward. Um, and yet they have the compassion and the care for that person that's sitting there and they don't have to ask them, how are you? They could, you know, I, I, when I was in the hospital with one of my family members and um, one of the orderlies, it was just about, oh, what lovely nail polish you've got there. And, oh, do you mind if I actually squirt a little of your perfume here? You know, just yeah. normal everyday things. Human. And Very that human. connection yeah. is what mm. that person remembers. Mm. They they don't remember the the nurses and or the doctors that they were upset with in a way. What they remember is that person that reached out to them. And so when you said that story, that's so connected because I thought that's what people want. They just want yeah. a bit of human connection. Human connection, yeah. And it's so in some ways so simple yet so foreign. We say just be, don't do. When you're with somebody who's in distress, just be, be with them and be with yourself. And it's probably harder to be with yourself. The more you can learn about your own feelings and, and tolerate your own emotions and, and experience them and express them and share them, um, the, the more you'll able, you're able to open up. We just did a training yesterday and, um, there's a young man who was just, he was, he was very distressed. He's, he's an artist. He's in LA. He, he's, um, has, is having trouble financially. It's hard to sell his art. He's not sure where he's going to live. So his, his, and he, he was very uptight. His shoulders were very tense. And, um, uh, one of our, our trainers was working with him and, and she was, she was attentive and open, but it was when she expressed her own discomfort. She said, you know, Sometimes I just can't find a way to sit. Uh, just where do I sit in the chair? Do I sit forward? Do I sit back? I, I, I'm uncomfortable. I, don't, I can't get comfortable. And he just, it just like, it, it brought a, a, a bond right away. Uh, we, we call it, a, um, actually, Andrew, um, who's a, an art therapist from um, in near Edinburgh. He calls it ting moments because we, we advocate ting listening which is the Chinese word to listen, which is eyes, ears, and heart. And so that he, this young man, had a ting moment. He, oh, you feel that way? I feel that way all the time. I'm uncomfortable in my own body. I don't know where I should be or how I should be. Or, oh, I'm so reassured to hear this one other person can feel that way. And his shoulders relaxed. His face relaxed. Oh, he... And he's a good friend of my daughter's, and he told told my daughter, "Oh, I, I, this was incredible. I now understand it." Mm -hmm. And it is through these we call them real plays, not role plays. Yeah. And we're careful not to say role plays because when I first came to Scotland, a young woman said to me, "You're going to have a hard time 
we Scottish people, we don't like emotions or role plays. <laughs> so True. We, we talk about feelings more than emotions. <laughs> we talk about real play, not role play. <laughs> That's probably a but good when idea. You, mm, <laughs> when we do them, though, those real plays, we really emphasize that this is just, uh, this is the way you learn, that mm. people learn it by experiencing it. And, and a number of people say, well, I heard you talk about it and I read about it, but it wasn't until I tried it out within yeah. the training. And yeah. it actually is possible to do the, these experiences online, mm -hmm. which was a big surprise to me. I was not a fan of the online before this pandemic. People would say, oh, why don't you try emotional CPR online? I'd say, no, 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 you have to be there in person. And I still think it's not a total substitute. No. I mean, you got to experience the, um, you know, I the did. person. I did. And yeah. in fact, when you said that, one of the things that we did was everybody put their cameras off. So it was just like me speaking to the other person. And actually, you mm -hmm. completely forgot that the other people were there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. it yeah. became like a conversation mm -hmm. just with, the, mm -hmm. with this other person. And it was really powerful. I didn't think yeah, it would be quite as powerful as that. But as soon as yeah. I just couldn't see anybody else, mm. it was like, right, I'm focused with this person. And it was you a great. Doing, uh, you were doing, you were apprenticing at that point. Yes, apprenticing. apprenticing. <laughs> By the way, she's going to be great. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so, because I really want to do it. <laughs> and Susan is too, but she's still, still likes to be the, 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 the sort of the force behind the the uh, <clears throat> activities and there's a there's a role for everyone and um we have now in scotland there four um four people who i would say are trainers mm -hmm. i know susan would probably say she's a facilitator but um <laughs> <laughs> we have a we have a little bit of a ladder um because we want to be sure that people really embody the uh the principles so you take a right. take a you know an introductory course um, it's, and then you're a participant and, and, and then you can apprentice mm -hmm. twice and then you can become a facilitator. And, mm. and honestly, we want, yeah, you're only one step away. You see Maggie from yeah. being a facilitator, which means you can co-lead a group. Yeah, and I'd love to do that. We do very much want to, um, train people locally. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you're in Fife. Yeah. I, I, I believe Fife is on fire with Maggie, by the way. <laughs> well, they're getting to hear about it anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. She's, 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 she's got the, uh, got the, the different, uh, positive virus. <laughs> I noticed that at the last training, um, I said that, um, the online one that I noticed yeah. a big difference in Maggie. I noticed a big difference in you just, you seem you seem more relaxed and more happy in your own skin, and and then when you did the role the role play or the real play, um, it just was really natural, and and um, I, I felt a bit guilty because I thought I I should have been doing this. I I always step back and try to, to try to sort of avoid if I can. But um, well, do you know, Susan, what I try to do is I try to just put myself in the position anyway, no matter what I feel like. I just think, oh, you know what, just do it, yeah. and then at least then I can experience what it's like for other people as well. And and I do feel uncomfortable at first, and I do feel a bit strange, and I think, do I want to do this? But I just I know that I get so much from it. 
And I know that it gives so much to other people as well. And I think that that's how humans need to learn from each other. I think that's how how I like to think. It's like a gift. It feels like a gift, you know. Yeah. When when you when you give yourself over like that, um, and you and you let it out, and and you know, everybody, everybody's in the room or that's there, even experiencing it, you know, they they sort of feel just humbled in lots of ways that that somebody's been able to do that, you know. That's true. I mean, you know, that's that's it. And I think Dan was speaking about um, some race or some some people that um, peoples that was it they said I see I see you or um, oh yeah in in South Africa there are tribes uh, the way they greet each other one person said I see you and the other person says I'm here and then they reverse it yeah yeah I could really could get that because <clears throat> I think that's where we were going down the, or, or, or a lot of societies going down the wrong road. We're not seeing each other. We're not really being with each other. Um, Yelling each other. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, and on that note, there's somebody at the door. At the door. Yeah, well, we did, you did warn us, Susan, that there might no be somebody worries. at the door, so don't worry about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> life happens. Well, yeah. exactly. That is life, and that's yeah. how it goes. You know, one thing yeah. I, I, I don't, I hope you don't mind me asking you this, Dan. It's Ask, a wee bit, I'll it's, answer if I can. It's a wee yeah. bit of a kind of, to me, it's the kind of question that most people will ask is, mm-hmm. you know, because everybody goes on about qualifications. Well, mm. you are not qualified to do this, and you could be putting people in danger. Because these people, you know, they're not qualified. And that's probably the biggest thing that people might ask. So how mm-hmm. would you kind of answer that? Well, the main qualification is being a human being with a human heart. Yeah, that's I mean, the, I believe main, it, I have to say. <laughs> yeah, that's the main but, qualification. And, and honestly, I think it's a lot safer. And I've noticed and see that it's a lot safer than um, traditional training. And I don't want to be overly critical of traditional training, but let's take somebody who's um, not sure about living. And, you know, let's face it, that happens, um, unfortunately. And, you you know, Susan was sharing the story like that, and we know of others. Um, And if somebody comes to someone in traditional training and they say, well, and that's a big risk, you know, um, and they're not sure about the future, maybe they say something vague like that, Traditionally, people are trained to switch gears into risk management, into, you know, a series of questions, questions, questions. And and I'm not suggesting at some point you don't want to ask certain questions. You know, what's the future look like to you? How long have you had these thoughts? Do you have a weapon? Have you tried it before? There's a series of questions. But universally, people who've been in that space, including myself, I was in spaces like that. These questions actually turn the person off. They will withdraw. They will distance themselves. They will not be honest. And if you don't, can't connect and you can't bond and you can't develop trust with the person, you're in a much more dangerous place than if you can connect. And we've had, we had one time a young woman, I didn't know it at the time, but she was in a training as in Singapore. And she told us at the end of the two days, she said, I feel so much better. At the beginning of the training, I wasn't sure I wanted to live. (gasps) She said, but 
the training helped restore my feeling that life was worth living. And the R in the CPR is revitalization, which literally is to help people feel that they have a life and that their life is worth living. And what's behind suicide often is feeling that you don't have a life. Um, Susan had mentioned that the young man had uh, disconnected. And, um, you know, that, that disconnection is often what leads to not feeling alive, mm-hmm. emotional disconnection. Yeah. And, you know, that comes from trauma. And we find that people, you know, their, their enthusiasm for life is restored by this. So I think it decreases risk, um, more than the traditional approach. It can be, it can be, combined with the traditional approach. So, you know, once you restore a sense of trust and a a source of connection, and you might say, this might be more than I individually could do. Is You know, is there anyone else that we can call or be part of? Um, I'll give you another example. I um, uh, Our center conducts every other year or so a national conference run by um, people with lived experience. It's called the Alternatives Conference. And people come from all over the world, actually, to get to attend it. This year, it'll be online. But <clears throat> there was a there was a woman there who was um, she she got into the state of mind that that I'd been in. Uh, she was not talking, and she was. We were in Arizona, a long ways from her home in Maine, and we were thinking, "Oh my gosh, she's going to have to be hospitalized in Arizona, and how will she ever make it back to Maine?" 3,000 miles away. And we just, we had peer support. Peers, people lived experience are able to build this bridge and this bond often more readily than people with, you know, uh, primarily professional training because we're, we're not afraid. Mm-hmm. We don't go, Oh my gosh, look, she's not dressing. She's not eating. No, we just went, let's just sit with her and be with her. Yeah. We also know that it's good to have like, good cop, bad cop. So we'd have the, the very supportive peer go in and say, oh, you know, I know this is hard. I'll just be with you. I'll support you. And then another one would go in a little later and say, you know, you only have two hours to get dressed. <laughs> if you don't, we can't put you on the van and you can't get on the, the plane and get back to Maine. <laughs> and, and I called her, her case manager in Maine who said, just put her in a hospital. That's all they could think of put her in a hospital. I said, what? In Arizona? We're going to put her in a hospital in Arizona? That's all we can do. We can't think of anything else. At It was 2 o'clock when she had to get on the van, and at 1.55, she put her clothes on, and she got in the van, and she got on the plane, and she got to Maine, and friends and, and a peer met her in Maine. The risk was much higher the risk uh, and yeah. the trauma would have been much higher if she had to be that. hospitalized so far from home. Yeah. And she made it to Maine, and she didn't even have to be hospitalized because she was with familiar people again. Oh, right. yeah. So it, I'd say, and I have heard no instance of someone practicing CPR in the 12 years that we've done it and the 10 countries that we've done it, um, of anyone having an increase in risk as a result of this. Yeah. It's, a, it's a human human experience. So yeah. no, I, I'm glad you asked that. Mm-hmm. 
I don't know if Susan heard. It was a question of risk. Is the risk increased or decreased by CPR? It's just that it's just that that is. I don't believe that myself, but I know that like that question are, could be asked. It yeah. will be asked by people yeah. because mm-hmm. that is traditional thinking, isn't it? That the it traditional is, yeah. methods are what people like to stick to because they feel safe mm-hmm. in that. But it's about challenging that because how safe are we within that? You know, I mean, there's so much more to learn. And surely as a society, as we move forward, we need to learn more about the, the heart and the brain connection. And how do we take it forward? Let, you know? me, let me give you one more real quick vignette. So I, I was uh, in training. I was a resident, psychiatric resident. And I was keeping quiet that I'd been hospitalized myself because I didn't feel safe to share that. So I was... Um, uh, they begin your training in an inpatient psychiatric unit, which I think is the worst place to begin. You know, you're going to see the people in their m- most distressed state, most upset. It didn't upset me because I'd been there myself. But, um, so the staff psychiatrist comes in to teach me how to interview somebody. And I had a lot of my own thoughts and feelings about how to interview because based on, you know, what I most wanted. So he sits there. And he's got his suit on, and he crosses his arms in front of him. He crosses his legs, and he looks really almost literally down at the patient um, and is in a very condescending way, asking question after question. And I'm watching the, the patient get angrier and angrier. And I'm thinking, this is not going well. And the patient jumped the psychiatrist, jumped on top of him. Yeah, he, he, he assaulted him. And uh, I, I pulled him off. I was had training as a wrestler when I was younger. But I thought to myself, I, he brought it upon himself. He yeah. brought it upon himself. And I mean, I don't want to brag about it, but I worked, you know, a number of years, inpatient, outpatient, day treatment, all different places. I was never assaulted. Yeah. I think if you come across genuine, authentic, um, heartfelt, humble, um, teach me, teach me, I say. I, I want to learn from you. Yeah. I'm not coming across like, you know, I'm going to control your life. That's up to you to do. That's right. I'll let you know what the risks are. You know, if you go out, you know, out in the streets and you take your clothes off, you probably will be arrested. So just, you know, you should be careful. I'm very honest and very frank with people. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they need, people need that at times. These, yeah. are, these are the limits, you know. Yeah. You may not be aware of it, but your behavior could lead to being apprehended. Yeah. I, I was just going to say as well on, on the thing about big, of, 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 you know, when I started in this job at Plus after being a psychiatric nurse um, for a, quite a few years and then meeting people in a very um, equal level, it was different in the third sector. And I, I kind of thought, oh, I felt like I was home when I got to work in the third sector. And I thought, this is, this is really great. And one of the, the things I've never forgotten that people in this organisation plus said um, was that they wanted to be um, cared about and not cared for. Nice. And, and that stuck, has stuck with me from the very beginning mm-hmm. about being cared about, you know. Mm-hmm. And it, for me, that's what emotional CPR is about. Yeah. yeah. It's about, feeling cared about and not cared for. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the big difference with what services in the system um, operate. Mm-hmm. Caring mm-hmm. for. And, you know, again, hearing about people that 
have have been really at a loss with their lives and 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 most important thing for them has to have felt cared about and has maybe helped them through. Absolutely. And the ones that has haven't got through, if they haven't got anybody's cared about them, mm-hmm. you know. And it's, it's being able to do that and being able to be free to do that, you know, mm-hmm. and know that that actually is a thing that will, in the long run or in the short run, will, will help mm-hmm. the person is it, because you you're, you're able to be free to care about them. And um, there's more barriers and more things getting put in front of people to stop them from being able to to, to feel free to care about others. And emotional CPR is one way of, of countering that. Yeah. yeah. When I want to do that, I want to see it progressing through Scotland. And um, we will keep doing, we will keep going, you know. Absolutely. And in fact, this is the reason I wanted to do this little podcast, really, was to find out a little bit more about it so that then we can actually share it with other people. And as soon as we can get this online, then, of course, it opens it up far, far more uh, to, to lots of people. And Susan, we discussed this um, yesterday. I think I, I said it in an email that we're looking at trying to do something maybe once a month, once every six weeks, just whatever suits. Um to be able to get regular updates as to how this is progressing, not just in Scotland, but also, you know, Dan's working in other fields as well, other areas, um, and to, to tie it together so we, so we can actually see where it's going. Um, so this is like the first of of the, the podcast that we're hoping to actually do on a regular basis. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, anything that, that, that really raises awareness... And because and gets people knowing about about it, you know, I've never any anybody I've spoken to about emotional CPR have been very keen and enthusiastic. And um, you know, when you when you speak about your own experiences, and oh, they're they're interested because they see that it has 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 benefits. Yeah. You know, it has massive benefits. So they're seeing that. So it's just like anything. You know, people don't know about it, then they won't they won't be able to benefit from it really so i think that's what we've got to do and this yeah. is great and yeah yeah it's great that you're doing this for us well i have to say this is my very first one so we'll just see how it goes and you know we we all we all learn by trial and error you know yeah. so for me it's about this isn't like a radio broadcast or whatever it's just a little discussion between human beings mm. and how how we can support each other and that's what we want to share with the world really um and so hopefully the podcast will be able to you know continue um so is there anything else that anybody maybe wanted to say today i mean obviously we will do it again as i say regularly but is there anything else that anybody feels that i've maybe that we've missed out or wanted to share or do you think i think we've done quite well actually i think we can give ourselves yeah. a pat on the back i agree i agree <laughs> it's been uh, wonderful for you to host this maggie and your enthusiasm is infectious and and this um it's it's our passion for 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 helping people that's what motivates me yeah. and and wishing that it'd be a better world for our children and that these many of these misunderstandings i mean we're dealing in the states now with two two crises um uh, the pandemic which is terrible and then also racial injustice which is a persistent problem but not just in the states no. it's just we're maybe more 
it's more um, uh, concentrated because we have the, the legacy of slavery. Um, and we're, we're trying to bring together all the cultures of the world, really, in the yeah. States. Yeah. So we have a, a, a tall order. But we feel that what we've learned from this recovery uh, experience can be spread throughout the community. It's a, it's a new initiative that we're working on called Community DCPR. So it's a, um, if we reach a critical mass, it's sort of like herd immunity for the virus, yeah. um, herd immunity for emotional distress, that we inoculate enough people with um, uh, feeling comfortable with their own and other people's emotions, then when someone's emotionally distressed, they they won't uh, the people around them won't say oh you have to medicate them and send them to a hospital or you know have them see a professional they say can I be with you yeah. I I'd, I'd love to just be with you and one person never never underestimate the power that one person one human heart can have there was a young man uh, Kevin Hines he he rode his bike to the Golden Gate Bridge and he jumped off. He survived remarkably. One of just a few people survived a 200-foot uh, drop. Afterwards, he said, if one person along the way who saw him on his bike, saw him stop the bike, saw him climb the fence, if one person just stopped and said, you know, you want to talk? I'm, I'm concerned. I'd like to talk with you. He said that would have stopped it. One, yeah. one person. So Amazing. Never doubt. Yeah. One the power of what one person can do. And you don't have to go, oh, I'm going to call the police. I'm going to call the fire department. I'm going to call the That's psychiatric fine. department. Yeah. No, you have your heart and you can do something with your heart. Absolutely. I mean, we had that in, in the UK, a, a young man named Johnny Benjamin. I don't know if you've heard of him. Mm. And there was a documentary, Channel 4 documentary called Stranger on the Bridge. Mm. And it was, he obviously had felt suicidal that day, had gone to London Bridge. I, uh, I think it was a runner who had gone past, had mm. actually stopped and spoke mm. to him and talked mm. him down. And actually, mm. the runner eventually disappeared into the crowd, but they uh. saved that person's life. Yeah. But what was interesting about it was Johnny, who's on Twitter, I'm, I'm in contact just, you know, just through Twitter tweets and mm -hmm. things like that and Facebook. Um, he, he wanted to find that man to thank him. Oh, and yeah, so Channel yeah. 4, I think, did the documentary uh, mm. to finding the person that had actually stopped him. And they did a little documentary about it. Mm. And it was so, so powerful. Um, but in did recent, they find him? Did they find yeah, him? Yeah, yeah, they found him. Oh, yeah, they found yeah, him. Yeah, and I, I believe yeah, that, yeah. you know, they're, they're friends and whatever. Mm. And it was Finding Mike. Cause I finding Mike, that was it. Yeah. It was so powerful. Um, yeah. And, and, but Johnny Benjamin has now gone on to be a mental health campaigner um, mm. and he's really powerful in what he's trying mm. to do. But there's a lot of barriers mm -hmm. and there's still a lot of work to be done. Mm -hmm. And so therefore things like ECPR, I'm sure that somebody mm. like him will would absolutely love to know about this. So guess, where, love, guess who I will be contacting? <laughs> yeah, I'd love, maybe we can have him on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We'll have to try yeah. that. So sure, I'd love to. Okay. That's great. What about yourself, Susan? Are you anything you wanted to add? Um, no, I was just thinking about the bridge analogy and about, you know, the fella, the fella um, Kevin Hines, I think you said. Nobody, Kevin Hines. Yeah. Nobody, you felt just so sad that 
that somebody could do that and nobody nobody stopped nobody because there must have been other people on that bridge mm, mm. and you know it's, it's yeah it's just a feeling of why why were people scared why, why mm. didn't they stop and it was that thing i was thinking about having the freedom to care about somebody that i think a lot of people are shackled and they, they can't they don't they haven't got the freedom to care for different reasons and my, my you know johnny benjamin's story the it was uplifting because that Mike went and he's and he's he's probably saved Johnny's life, you know. Um, and you know, different two different stories, but mm. just um, showing you how different it is in different places on different days and different times, and a lot of it is down to just you know who's there at the time, That's you right. know, the world. So, uh, but the fact that people don't sometimes feel able that they, they, they can intervene that's that's sad really mm-hmm. that, that's, that makes me feel quite sad really mm-hmm. uh, and that's something I think that emotional CPR um, definitely has has the potential to turn around yeah absolutely definitely yeah. you know yeah. and powerful you know. tool absolutely powerful tool um, so yeah thanks very much um, I'll, I'll put my record button off now and then we can have our chats about <laughs> what we thought, how it went. 